Hi, I'm uh, Aaron Weinacht, and I'm here with Professor Nikolai Kermansilv uh, to talk about his new book about Russian eugenics. It's titled uh, With and Without Galton. Uh, so thanks for being with us, Professor. Thank, thank you for inviting me. Uh, you think you could start us off by telling us a bit uh, about uh, your academic background, where you went to school, how you got into the history of science and so on? Um, sure. Uh, my first training was as a biologist. Um, I started off at the university in the south of Russia, in Rostov-on-Don, and I special, specialized in neurophysiology. Um, I graduated from uh, university with distinction and was invited to continue my work in neurophysiology at the um, kind of Russia's leading center for their discipline, the Pavlov Institute of Physiology in uh, Leningrad. So I worked there for three years, did my experiments, et cetera, et cetera. But then I kind of lost interest in experimental science uh, for a variety of reasons and decided to move to more naturalistic work in biology. So I did my master's at Leningrad University in ecology. But soon thereafter, I realized that it wasn't science experimental or otherwise, but just doing science in general in the Soviet Union, which did not appeal to me anymore. So I kind of quit academia altogether for a while. And then by almost pure accident, I discovered history of science, which appealed to me in many ways. So I did another PhD in um, history of uh, biology at the Academy of Sciences, the Institute for the History of Science and Technology in Leningrad, and um, defended a dissertation on the interrelations between the studies of animal behavior and animal evolution uh, in Russia in, uh, if I remember correctly, in 1990. That's when I kind of began working in the history of science proper. And since my first work in the history of uh, Russian biology, I got kind of interest in eugenics. Again, for a variety of reasons, and um, especially because at the time when I was studying in grad school, the history of science, um, what is called social history of science was not a part of uh, what was expected of me. Um, under the Soviets, the history of science was largely um, delimited to intellectual contents. And um, when I studied the history of Russian slash Soviet biology, I was struck by the absence of, you know, important 
events in the general history of the country, ranging from, you know, Bolshevik Revolution, Civil War, Great Terror, to the Cold War, uh, in the work of my colleagues in this field. So I kind of started to move into the social history and together with several um, graduate students who felt the same way, we tried to inaugurate the reintroduction of social and cultural uh, into our studies of science. And uh, since then, you know, all my work in the history of science was kind of motivated by this idea that we cannot understand the development of science in Russia or elsewhere without taking into account its social and cultural uh, surroundings on the one hand. And on the other hand, we cannot really understand what is going on in the general history of a country or general history of human race without taking into account science as part of that history. And um, that's basically my kind of general attitude towards uh, doing what I do, mainly writing about various episodes in the history of Russian and Soviet science, and uh, to a large degree defined what I try to accomplish in my latest work on uh, eugenics in Russia. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um... Yeah, it sounds kind of like a, a bit of a Thomas Kuhn type approach to the history of science. No, yeah. no, not quite. no, not quite. Thomas Kuhn was mostly interested, again, what happened to science uh, within science proper. What I'm more interested in is how, say, social and political developments in a particular locale find its ways or, you know, reflected or refracted in the content of science, but also in its organization. Science is not simply a sum of knowledge we acquired up to a certain point or develop in various ways. It also a very important social institution with a variety of links and connections to other social institutions, be that religion, state, the church, or any other social bodies, you know, culture in general. Or you can say, you know, we can investigate the interrelations between, say, literature, the science fiction, and science, or we can investigate how um, scientific development is affected by contemporary political or economic thinking, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm interested in mostly is the multitude of connections by which not only content of science, scientific ideas, hypotheses, theories, experiments, but also um, spe specific ways of doing science, specific institutional arrangements, ways of funding, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, 
are reflected in what science is actually doing and what it actually does for us as, you know, members of particular societies. Yeah. So with that, with that kind of background uh, in, in mind, I was wondering, you know, part of the, part of the thrust of your book is that there really is no one thing that's eugenics, but for the uninitiated, I was wondering if you could kind of just lay out in, in broad terms, what, you know, people that have, have thought of themselves as eugenicists have supported, what kinds of things they've wanted to promote. I see. Well, you see, in my view, which is not shared by everyone who studies eugenics, eugenics was not one thing. It was a kind of beast with many faces, many bodies, and many different parts, uh, which uh, in different places kind of developed into different beasts. And um, since I was interested in particular in what was going on in Russia, I couldn't do much until I understand how, say, eugenics was developed in various other places. So this idea of a comparative approach to whatever we study in our research is very important. And I think, you know, with many other biologists, I would say that without actual comparison of one particular species of a kind of, be it eugenics, physics, or mathematics in specific locale, we cannot understand fully what is going on um, in um, each locale, you know, not to mention make some generalizations about some, you know, platonic physics or platonic mathematics or platonic eugenics. So when, you know, I speak to uh, sometimes my colleagues, sometimes to more general audiences uh, about my work, everybody kind of thinks they know what eugenics is. But when you start asking them what do they think it was and uh, um, what they could expect when I would be, you know, explaining what happened in Russia with eugenics, all they could remember basically is two things. It's either sterilization laws and various abuses of that law in the United States, Germany, or Scandinavia, or, on the other hand, Nazi uses of eugenics ideas and ideologies very popular in Germany under the name of Rassenhygien um, as the foundation for Holocaust and uh, euthanasia and death camps, etc., etc. And when I say, well, what do you think would happen in, in, in Russia, particularly Bolshevik Russia? None of those ideas which underlied the actions of people called 
who called themselves eugenicists in, say, United States, Norway, or Germany, would be condoned by the Bolsheviks, who claimed that they were building classless society, who were loudly anti-racist, internationalist. Why would they support eugenics? Why would eugenics develop in, in this social uh, conditions? And they would be at lost for words, saying, yeah, well, probably there wasn't any eugenics in Russia. I say, no, there was. And uh, that's what makes it so interesting. So after kind of reading quite extensive literature on the history of eugenics in Britain, United States, Germany, and many other places, you know, in the interwar period, eugenic societies were organized in more than 40 countries around the world, uh, from Japan to Norway and from Romania to the Kingdom of Serbs and Croats. So it was a kind of an international phenomenon. So, and Russia was just one of this many places in which this phenomenon was apparent. So trying to figure out what all those uh, multiple variations of what was called eugenics had in common, I kind of come to, come to realization that uh, there is no single thing which makes eugenics, but usually it's a sort of an amalgam, and a fusion of four different elements which are present in anything which calls itself eugenics and what later historians would identify as eugenics. So in my view, uh, the, the most important among these four elements are the ideas about human reproduction and the correlated ideas of heredity, variability of um, humans as a species. So, um, if we look at, at those ideas, it's understandable that, say, in the mid-19th century, when these eugenic ideas first were born, the acknowledged founding father of eugenics, whose name is on the title of my book, Francis Galton, a British polymath published his first article on what later, twenty almost 20 years later, he would name eugenics in 1865. And um, he had very specific ideas about heredity, which, um, you know, differed considerably from the ideas about heredity which held by other um, proponents of the same ideas. So the human reproduction and what kind of ideas underlie this and 
it's not only heredity, it's also ideas about individual development, how a particular organism develops, how human organism develops, not only as a biological organism, but also as a social organism, as a member of a particular society. So um, these ideas about human reproduction are not considered in themselves, I would say. They're always considered by eugenicists and, and um, uh, people interested in these ideas as oriented to the future. This future orientation is extraordinarily important. And in my view, you know, we, we should even consider eugenics as a science of the future because, because it, it, it thinks, it tries to understand how our interventions in human reproduction could affect the future. So along with the ideas about heredity, variability, development, and evolution, characteristic of very specific locales and specific times where this uh, eugenic idea is developed. What also is very important is the actual social concerns, certain problems which eugenic interventions in human reproduction should address. These concerns, of course, again, very different. They perceived by different members of the same society different. They perceived very differently in different societies. And mostly what uh, these concerns are centered on is, again, the concerns about the future. What would happen if we, say, do not intervene? do not do something. And um, of course, these concerns are heavily influenced by concurrent values, which are also very specific to sp particular societies and particular times. And it is the kind of amalgams of this ideas, concerns, and values which together define eugenics as a body of ideas. But eugenics is more than just a body of some ideas and concerns and values. It also includes very important part, namely actions, certain policies, certain measures, again, all directed to human reproduction, human heredity, human variability and development. And of course, they're also very specific to specific societies. So if we look at this kind of any specific place where eugenics uh, was articulated, we can kind of parse whatever is said about eugenics into these four big categories. Say, if we look at what uh, Galton himself said about eugenics, we can see that 
you know, his eugenics, as articulated in his various writing, was very specific to late Victorian England. Uh, in Galton's writings, you can easily discern the specific notions of human reproduction because it is based on his personal anthropological, statistical, biological, Darwinian notions of what heredity is, what variability is, what development and evolution is. And it is kind of fused with his personal value systems. You can clearly see the expression of his upper-middle-class, racist, imperialist, sexist, bourgeois, atheist, whatever you want to call it, value system. And the policy and actions he proposes for kind of furthering eugenics are also quite specific. He includes... Um, into his proposal, the state regulation of marriage, stipends to various talented young people to support their procreation. He advocates for propaganda of eugenic ideas, which kind of would make these ideas a new religion and uh, will somehow uplift what he calls human faculty of the British nation and alleviate, you know, the social eels, as it was called at the time, such as, you know, criminality, pauperism, differential fecundity, which were the concerns of his contemporary society. And it is all done in, in order to assure the survival, the future survival and future development of British nation. And of course, you know, as being such a local uh, particular uh, set of ideas, values and, and, and practices and um, concerns, it found eventually, not, not immediately, support and elicited, elicited criticism from individuals which also represented a very specific array of disciplines, professions, ideologies, occupations, all quite characteristic of late Victorian England. So when I realized that I could actually use this four-part uh, kind of analytical tool to figure out the specificity of what eugenics is in, in each particular locale, I kind of understood what was going on in Russia in, in, in a very different way. And thus, it provided me with the tool to kind of dissect uh, various pronouncements, statements, publications, policies, uh, which were adopted in the name of eugenics or were named eugenicists, uh, eugenics um, at the time. So that was kind of my original intention to see how this kind of four major components 
interact among each other, how they reflect uh, both scientific and um, social circumstances of the particular um, locale and particular time in which eugenics uh, developed. So what is it that uh, that's specific to, to Russian conditions that, in, in your view, that would make uh, somebody like Florensky then have, uh, you know, much less of a kind of hierarchical view of, of eugenics than somebody like Galton? Like, you know, what, what are just some of the general you know, Russian uh, realities that, that make it different there than, say, in England or the United States? Well, that would depend, first of all, on the time which we will be discussing. If if we talk about, say, mid-19th century, when the first uh, Russian versions of what later would become called eugenics were articulated, and the example I'm using in my work is uh, the writings of a physician, uh, Vasily Florinsky, who published his first and the only large book on um, uh, what he called the generation and perfection of humankind in 1865, exactly at the same date when Galton published his first article on eugenics. Then we can talk about the specific differences between, say, the context of Victorian England and uh, mid-19th century Russia. If we were to compare, say, the rapid development of eugenics in the interwar years, then we would have to compare, say, the context of uh, United States or Britain or Germany with the context of the Soviet uh, Russia. So let me start with the mid-19th century because many of the um, events and and developments of that period would be reflected later on in the development of eugenics in Russia. So to, to, to begin with, you know, the British Empire in the mid-19th century and the Russian Empire of the same period of vastly different places, economically, politically, socially, on every single level uh, of comparison, aside of the word empire attached to these two countries, are basically just two different animals. So let us start with, you know, kind of, piece-by-piece analysis, say, um, if we begin with comparing eugenic as as a set of ideas about human uh, reproduction, human heredity, variability, and evolution. Of course, both Dalton and Florinsky were deeply influenced by Darwin and Darwin's theory of uh, the origin of species. They took from Darwin 
a lot of ideas about how evolution proceeds, generally speaking. Darwin's ident identification of the major mechanisms, uh, he called it laws of evolution, uh, in natural selection, struggle for life, and uh, variability and heredity as the main conditions of such evolution deeply influenced both Galton and uh, Flarinsky. Yet, even on the level of ideas, which are supposedly kind of international and travel throughout the world without much interference, we can discern certain specific differences. The differences derive, first of all, in um, from the different uh, professions. Galton started his medical career under the influence of his parents who wanted him to kind of to continue in the footsteps of his illustrious grandfather, Erasmus Darwin. But as for his cousin Charles Darwin, medical career did not appeal to young Galton, and he dropped the studies of medicine. He continued with the studies of mathematics, and his views of heredity and his views of variability and development were deeply influenced by his analysis and development of mathematical tools, namely statistics. In contrast, Florinsky Kind of was born to a different milieu. He was born to Russian clergy, which for a long time served as a main reservoir for the, uh, Russia's educated elites. So he graduated from uh, a religious school and wanted to continue his career in the clergy, but just by accident, he was barred from entering the theological academy. So instead, he entered the medical school, and he did graduate. And furthermore, he got so interested and so involved with his uh, work as a physician that his teachers kind of slated him for a professorial position at his alma mater. So he not only became a physician, he also conducted considerable research, defended a dissertation for the doctor of medicine degree, went to a two-year-long study, kind of postdoc studies in the best clinics in Europe, and became not simply a practicing physician, but a professor of gynecology and obstetrics at his medical school. So his understanding of reproduction is much deeper and much more detailed in terms of, you know, actual knowledge of how reproduction works. Um, and thus, his understanding of heredity is much kind of more sophisticated than any of the contemporary biologists. So that already creates certain 
differences between the conceptions of eugenics as developed by Galton and Florinsky. But if we move further and start to compare, say, value sets of Galton and and Florinsky, we see even bigger differences. Uh, As I mentioned, you know, for Galton, we can clearly see the values of upper-middle-class British gentlemen embedded in his conceptions. But Florinsky came from a very different background, and he actually represented a very particular, in many ways, uh, new and relatively small group in um, mid-19th century Russia. It was called Raznachintse, literally persons of various ranks. And it kind of identified a group of people who came from usually low-level social stratus and reason to particular social positions, becoming teachers, engineers, professionals. And um, their values are very markedly differ from mid-level or upper-level middle class in Britain. For them... You know, the ideas of even simple things like patriotism. For many British um, educated elites of the time, the patriotism resided in the monarchy, in the personality of the queen, in, in the empire as such, empire kind of signifies for them what patria means. For Raznachintse, it is not the monarchy, even less the personality of a particular monarch. Um, In this case, Alexander II, and even less, you know, the the religious unity of of, um, the land. It's the people, the people, you know, the Russian narod, who kind of embodies for this group what the actual patria means. And, of course, the values which inform and embody this very different attitudes are not the same. If we look at the third element of what I would identify in eugenics, the social concerns or, you know, the problems, the social problems which eugenics is supposed to address, we also can see very, very different social problems. If for Galton and many of his contemporaries Uh, one of the big social problems was, say, differential fecundity of upper classes and the lower classes, and what they perceived as the degeneration of the lower classes. Uh, For Russian intellectuals, this is not a problem at all. They do not perceive the lower classes in this in their understanding the people 
of their country as degenerated. To the contrary, what they see is the upper classes, the aristocracy, who is the degenerate. And, And they believe that it is the people who kind of carry in, in themselves the, the, the seeds of the future. And thus, for them, it is the kind of enabling the realization of the potentials which are hidden in the masses of the people, not the promulgation of special talents exhibited by say, members of the cultural and state elites, as it is for the British. And you can understand that the set of actions, the Russian eugenicists, we'll call them that, would propose, would also dramatically differ from the set of actions proposed by, uh, say, British eugenicists not only because they identify different problems which need to be addressed, but also because their values are very different. So if we compare, say, the set of policies which um, Dalton advocates with the set of policies which Florinsky proposes in his treatise, they look very different, too. So there are certain similarities in in that both Galton and Florinsky advocate propaganda of knowledge about human heredity, about human reproduction, so that people can make choices on their own. They do both share kind of deep respect for individual rights and um, individual freedoms. Nevertheless, Florinsky is probably the first to articulate quite clearly and succinctly the simple principle that it is the individuals who must make all the decisions. They could be guided in their decisions by a physician, who has much better knowledge of certain specific um, details related to, say, hereditary diseases or some other things, but it is still the individuals that would make this decision. And thus, to explain what those decisions could be and should be is the kind of major task of intellectuals, of eugenicists who propagate these ideas. The same sort of analysis could be applied to the next time period, say, uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution, of course, the whole set of ideas, values, concerns, and actions regarding human reproduction and evolution changes dramatically for a very simple reason, that the science developed over the 50-plus years since mid-19th century. 
mass of new knowledge about heredity in particular, variability, about reproduction, has been accumulated. So the very notion of what heredity is changes dramatically. But say we can, again, accept the notion that science is international, so everybody um, shares the same new ideas about heredity. For instance, what defined uh, many, uh, not all, but many eugenic movements in in many countries was uh, genetics as a discipline, which only emerged in the early 20th century. There was no genetics in the mid-19th century. So at the level of ideas, the new understanding of heredity, Mendelism, later on Weismanism, named after a German scientist who did a lot of research on um, heredity, August Weismann, and uh, later on, say, T.H. Morgan, theory of uh, chromosomal heredity, all these new developments necessarily affected what people thought about eugenics. Yet, the perception of these ideas, even though we can say that there are universal truths because they are supported by scientific experiments, etc., etc., the perception of these ideas varies, and it varies dramatically depending on specific cultural affinities, specific ways of teaching, and many other things. So, exactly at the same time when this new notion of heredity based on Mendelian genes and uh, chromosomes comes to the fore as the explanation of heredity, its incorporation with the ideas of evolution is much more problematic. Almost everywhere, in Britain, in the United States, in Russia, there are numerous competing theories, some of which incorporate this new heredity, some of which are not, and thus these different competing theories influence the set of ideas which would be absorbed into eugenics. The same goes for value system. I don't think we need to go into details how the value systems changed dramatically for many European countries after the First World War, which basically kind of demonstrated the impossibilities of continuing along the same path the war, which was supposed to be, you know, to end all wars, turned out to be a horrific catastrophe for the entire Western civilization. And that, that, that feeling that war kind of put a stop on old way of thinking, on old way of living, was prevalent among the intellectuals of the entire world. 
we can look at the post-World War I literature ranging from, I don't know, Henri Barbus in, in, in France and uh, Ernst Hemingway in, in, in the United States and many other writers all over the world, this feeling is ever-present. And of course, this feeling is much more present in Bolshevik Russia, which kind of emerged out of the horrors of World War One, and through the Bolshevik Revolution, claimed to kind of depart from the old ways, to, to conduct a new experiment, the great experiment of building a new society, a new world, a new man, you know, the new civilization. And of course, you know, the system of values, the system of concerns, which face this society is very much different from the set of values and the set of problems faced by societies in other countries. Thus, we can see clearly that the set of actions which, say, Russian eugenicists would advocate during this time also differs dramatically from the set of actions advocated by their counterparts in Britain and Germany and the United States and Italy. Um, many of their underlying ideas which kind of fuel the development of eugenics in various countries which emerged in Europe um, after their First World War is very different. For many of those countries which emerged out of the ruins of Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian Empire, the defining ideas were nation, nation building, nation state. That what kind of this all newborn countries from Poland, which emerged out of ruins of Russian Empire or Baltic states as Estonia, nation became the unifying ideas. And of course, the mythology of blood and soil, as my colleagues call it, was very important for emerging of this new eugenic ideas in, in places like Romania or Hungary. But um, in, 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 in Russia, nation is not a unifying ideas. In Bolshevik Russia, nation is not the idea which underlies the creation of the new state. It's the class, it's the proletariat, which by Marxian definition is international. The proletarians of all countries unite. That's the slogan of uh, Bolshevik revolution. So clearly, the eugenics. In, in Bolshevik Russia differs considerably. There is no discussion of, say, sterilization laws, which are very popular in the United States and various Scandinavian countries, say in Norway, or even newly formed Finland. But in Russia, with few exceptions, 
few individuals who support sterilization, the majority of people who identify themselves with eugenics, members of eugenic society, which was established in Russia in 1920, sterilization is not the way to go. They're not interested in it because they think it, it's, uh, first of all, not sufficiently grounded in scientific knowledge. And secondly, even if it is grounded in certain knowledge. It's completely insufficient to reach the proclaimed goal of, you know, perfecting the human breed or humankind. So they dispense with sterilization. They do not, you know, cons- consider things like euthanasia at all. And they focus on things which would help uh, the new state and its populace to be healthy. Health emerges as the kind of unifying idea under all of eugenic proposals. The Bolsheviks do adopt certain laws, which at the time even called eugenic laws, but they look very, very different from what eugenic laws um, adopted by or proposed by Norwegian eugenicists or American eugenicists look like. They are completely out of the kind of mainstream eugenics at the time. They require uh, basically voluntary action on uh, the part of individuals. They postulate that at the time of the registration of marriage, the prospective couple should present a certificate that they informed each other of their medical histories. Thus, kind of assuring the hereditary health of individuals. So, of course, this kind of law is very difficult to enforce, and it is very difficult even to monitor, yet this is the kind of eugenic actions which the Bolshevik eugenicists advocate. So, and and we can look at, at further history of eugenic ideas and proposals and compare in the same way what was kind of developed under the name of eugenics in in Russia in, say, 1990s and what was debated under the same rubric in, um, say, United States. We will also see this clear differences in in their certain ideas, certain values, certain social concerns, and most importantly, certain actions and policies, which together form what we would call eugenics. Do uh, do you think that uh, that you're talking about the the emphasis on health? Um, there, I was wondering if that's true of a project like Bogdanov's uh, blood transfusions. Is that 
does that project is kind of fit within that overall focus on healthy individuals or is that project really something different? <clears throat> it is um, different and it is kind of similar for um, a variety of reasons. It is different in, in the sense that it does not address the questions of human reproduction. It is not concerned with the progeny at all. Every eugenic concept, as we know them, is focused on reproduction and future generations. On the other hand, Bogdanov's general idea of using blood transfusions, well, not even transfusions, blood exchanges, is within the same milieu of kind of revolutionary experimentation which emerges in, in the early decades of the 20th century. I've dealt with Bogdanov in another book I published almost 10 years ago, and I've kind of analyzed in detail what he wanted to do, what he actually did, and how it was perceived in various places and times. But generally speaking, uh, Bogdanov's ideas lay within the same milieu of the ideas of Bolshevik creating new civilization, new life, new human beings, as it were. But since there are folk, his experiments are focusing on now, immediate kind of reorganization, they belong to a different, I would call it sub-trend, uh, of biomedical experimentation of the time, which is not directly linked to eugenic ideas. Even though you can argue that certain ultimate goals of both Bogdanov and Russian eugenicists to a degree overlap, because both kind of think in terms of creating new man new future generations of man would, would be kind of appropriate to the social circumstances created by the Bolshevik Revolution, the tools, the ideas, and concerns which underlie Bogdanov's project are very, very different. The values are the same. But everything else is very, very different. I was, uh, I was wondering too. I thought one of the more most interesting parts of your book was how you were observing that at the at the exact same time where we have this heavy emphasis on the new Soviet man and so on, kind of in the the pre World War II era. Like that's exactly the same time when eugenics and genetics and so on got officially prescribed. I was wondering if you could, you know, comment briefly on, on why you get that kind of unexpected prohibition on, on, you know, eugenic projects. I don't think it's unexpected. I think it's quite predictable actually, because you see, um, uh, 
the project of new man, first of all, it, it predates the Bolshevik Revolution, it predates eugenics. It's a very old ideas, and it's, you know, basically this, the, the phrase new man uh, has no defined meaning. Its meaning changes dramatically depending on the context. We can see, you know, a huge debate about new man during, you know, the Reformation time in in Europe, the religious Reformation. We can see a large debate on new man at the time of French Revolution. We can see the same sort of debate on new man during the mid-19th century Russia, during the period of so-called great reforms. So at each period, this phrase, new man, has very different meaning. So the components of that meaning are basically explained by the phrase itself, the two words, new and man. The new implies that time that our understanding of what time is, is very important because you can't talk about something new if you don't know what the old was. And man in that phrase implies very um, kind of fundamental meaning of what we mean when we say man. What is the essence of man as it were? And of course, the ideas about what man is change dramatically. So what is happening in Russia is very interesting because up to 1930, eugenics and eugenicists used this language of creating new man, and it is accepted and supported by the Bolsheviks, by the leaders of Bolshevik party by various uh, high-ranking Bolsheviks, which, you know, direct the ministries of Bolshevik government, say Nikolai Simashka, who was the head of the Ministry of Public Health, <clears throat> Anatoly Lunacharsky, who was the head of the education ministry. There is a famous uh, work by Leon Trotsky, the second in command in the Bolshevik Revolution, who supports the idea that we now will create um, a new higher social biological being, an Ubermensch, if you will. That's his exact words. So, and eugenicists kind of capitalize on this rhetoric, and um, it's used very much in promoting both genetics and eugenics in the Bolshevik Russia. What changes dramatically in the 1930, actually it starts a little early and continues for a little longer, is a new revolution. Uh, as uh, my colleagues called it the revolution from above. And that's uh, kind of a process of consolidation of um, Joseph Stalin's personal power over the party apparatus and the 
power of the apparatus over the nation, which leads to a dramatic reshaping of the entire economic, political, cultural landscape of Bolshevik Russia. It's not Bolshevik anymore, because as part of that revolution, all the first-generation Bolsheviks are replaced with Stalin's cronies, among many other things. And what happens at that moment is very interesting. The notion of what a human being is changes dramatically. If during the 20s, the 1920s, the notion of humans as biological beings and social beings simultaneously was kind of dialectically accepted. Indeed, one of the proponents of so-called proletarian eugenics, who actually rediscovered Florinsky's treatise and republished it in 1926, even proposed that this new proletarian eugenics should be biosocial, that it should incorporate the notions of human beings as both biological and social organisms. After 1930s, this kind of dialectical unity of human beings gets torn apart. Stalin inaugurates kind of, you know, orthodox Marxist approach to human history, which states, you know, if you take it literally, that humans are just the results of a bringing and economic circumstances under which they grow up. Thus, all the biology, which is kind of embedded in the notions of heredity, in the notion of uh, hereditary diseases or hereditary health, gets relegated to the second, if not third, or fourth place. And it is the social being which becomes emphasized and kind of becomes the actual essence of humanity. Thus, the biological part became almost unmentionable. And that was one of the reasons that eugenics kind of disappeared in Russia after 1930. The biological part remains only as a very disciplined, very narrow, understanding of hereditary diseases. Everything else, especially the future of this human being, is now exclusive prerogative of Marxists. To be more specific, party ideologues and Stalin personally. Thus, the new man of the 1930s is not a biological creature at all. It is a creature created by Soviet conditions, conditioned by the system of education, by the very uh, way this new organism develops in the 
completely new social circumstances, which, as you know, Stalin proclaimed, you know, socialism has been built by the mid-1930s. So the new men rhetoric, although on the surface it looks the same, in actual fact, talks about very, very different things. And because Marxism is the only science, which, you know, science in quotes, uh, which is allowed to elaborate anything on anything related to the future, any kind of biological or tinted by biology project of influencing that future becomes a heresy. It is only Marxism which defines the kind of progression of human history from slavery to feudalism to capitalism to imperialism to socialism and finally the final stage, the communism. That defines human future. We don't need biology to reach that future, according to Marxism. All we need is to change the relationships between productive forces and the means of production. This is one of the reasons eugenics and later genetics gets, you know, bad reputation in in the Soviet Union in the 1930s and and the 1940s. We got uh, enough time for kind of one more big question here. I was, uh, I was, as I was kind of sitting back after I finished reading the book and reflecting on it, I was, I was thinking about your material there on, uh, of day of at the, at the end of the book. Yep. And, uh, I was wondering, so you've emphasized here how the, the, you know, inherent importance of local context, local context or, or national context. Um, do you, do you see that changing in the, in the future as the world gets more, uh, you know, it's just as technology enables international science to get ever more international. Do you think that, that that's changing at all? Or do you think that like when Avdeyev says things about eugenics now that that's really particular to Russian conditions or, um, does that, does that make sense? Um, you know, it's a it's a very big question, and it's been debated by many of my colleagues. Uh, I think that you know the the actual globalization, as we understand it, of technology of science, is not as global as we perceive it to be, to begin with. For very simple reasons, as I've mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, science is a social institution which is deeply embedded in local conditions. It is kind of connected to local patrons, local uh, trajectories, local traditions and genealogies, local ideologies and practitioners. And we can see, even in our you know, globalized world, how different the science existence in different places could be. Even at the level of uh, 
you know, experiments which are allowed or not allowed in in different locales. You know, particularly per, pertinent, I think, to this is the attitude towards human experimentation. You know, certain experiments with, you know, genetic new technologies like CRISPR um, I allowed in, say, Indonesia, Malaysia, or China, and not allowed in the European Union or United States. I kind of so, had that example in the back of my head when I, I was wondering if you'd bring that up. But this is, you know, this is an obvious kind of reference. On the other hand, what uh, globalization can do is to kind of spread the mythology very rapidly, very fast through the, you know, various uh, areas of the world surrounding science and scientific experiments. Um, you know, science become becomes part of our everyday experience. We live in the world which is saturated by science, which not the case, say, a hundred years ago. You know, you open a newspaper, you, you watch news, you, you listen to radio, you always encounter a subsection, a section devoted to medical research, scientific research, you know, some exciting discoveries. The most recent, say, the photograph of the black hole, which, you know, was splashed all over media of all kinds. So this simple imagery is very helpful in one way in, in spreading the knowledge about certain, say, natural phenomena, but at the same time, they propagate this very simplistic attitude towards what science is, what it does, and how it does it. And uh, it might be, in some ways, beneficial, but in other ways, as we know, say, from recent debates about genetically modified foods or continuing unending debates about vaccination the false information which is spreading through this you know global media is detrimental so i don't know it it, it is a double edged sword in many ways and um, i know that many scientists and my colleagues historians of science kind of try to counteract this kind of incorrect representation of science, scientific discoveries, and scientific works. I'm not sure they are quite successful as the journalists who sensationalize science and, and, and you know, produce this innumerous descriptions of the latest breakthrough in cancer research or the latest breakthrough in this research. And it doesn't actually inform the public of what is actually going on. It 
propagates that's very simplistic and in many ways, I would say, misleading notion of what science is, how it works, and what can we expect. As it raises certain expectations among the people and among the reading public, and when those expectations do not materialize, it creates a backlash. Anti-scientific sentiment. Now, in many ways, the kind of resistance to, say, vaccination is feeding on on this sentiment. So, yes, in some ways, the scientific idea is universal. They could be produced in one locale, then kind of verified or, as as the case may be, disproved by experiments done in other locales. But the existence of science will always be local until we kind of evolve to eliminate those local differences, which I think and I hope would never happen because the variability is a feature of life. It's it what makes uh, the survival of any biological organism or biological niche or biosphere in general possible. Not to mention making travel pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. Yeah. Yeah, we're about out of time here. I, w- I wanted to ask you: Do you do you have another? Uh, is there any other projects you're working on now that you're finished with this book that you'd want to comment about? Um, yes, I have a few projects actually, which in many ways linked in in you know in in this and my previous projects. I'm really fascinated by the 1920s. The period after the second, after the First World War, and this, you know, very short in in historical terms period between the two world wars. I find it extraordinarily fascinating, and particularly in Russia because of the social revolution, because of the Bolshevik revolution, about you know promises and possibilities. Uh, which the revolution opened. So I'm trying to kind of expand what I've done in my several previous works um, on on that period and look at other kind of research directions and agendas which were prominent during this time, including one of the subjects we touched upon in our previous um, conversation, The New Man. I actually has organized a large conference on The New Man in scientific and cultural experiments in Russia, which will happen uh, in just a few weeks uh, in mid-May in St. Petersburg, Russia, and uh, which will bring together specialists and cinema, literature, culture, arts, and science. And we would like to discuss, you know, what the ideas of new men actually meant 
and how they were used by different groups in, in, in Russia from 1900s to the beginning of the Second World War. This is one of the you know, new projects I'm working on now. Another is very peculiar and also deriving from the same interests, and uh, that's uh, the study of telepathy in Bolshevik Russia. <laughs> I know it might come as a complete surprise, but during the early 1920s, Bolshevik Russia was one of the world leaders in scientific research on the questions of telepathy. I did and, not know that. Yes, and very few people know about it at all because it seems completely counterintuitive. Is how could you know a subject so long shrouded in 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 the notions of uh, spirits, spiritualism, you know, communing with the dead? become the subject of research in Russia, but it did. And furthermore, it produced a very interesting sort of cultural response to this research. Uh, at least four novels and several dozens of you know, short stories which used this telepathy research as the major component of their plots were published during the 1920s in Russia. Hmm. So what I want to kind of investigate in this new project is the interrelations again between the actual science, which had been done at that time, and how that science was refracted, digested, and presented in the literary productions, which would also unpack, you know, how science is perceived by its contemporary society, what kind of things the public, if I may say so, uh, takes out from science, what things fascinate people, what things attract their attention. And of course, why it happens, why it happens then and there and how. So it, it is you know, very interesting material. I've, I've collected large uh, amounts of archival documents and photographs and publications. So I'm really looking forward to kind of digging out what, what I can out of that uh, very rich uh, material I've collected. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that. That sounds like a really interesting project. I think we'd probably better uh, better call it uh, call it quits here. So uh, thanks thanks for your time, Professor Kremenzov. That was a, a very interesting book. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you so much. I appreciate talking about it, even though you know. It's been a while uh, since I finished it. So. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.